Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is May 13th, 2008. Didn't think I'd make it. I, I really didn't think I'd make it. <laughs> I planned on checking out sometime in the 20th century, and here it is, the 21st, and I'm still going deja vu all over again. It's the Marathon Fundraiser, folks, and I have been given the special privilege of not having to pitch for money, probably because I don't do it very well. So I have to give you the hint and ask you, please, to call KPFA anyway, even even if it's old Jennifer rattling on. Uh, you can always call in and get one of our terrific premiums, and uh, maybe one of these days... I can come up with a premium. Oh, you know, we used to give... <laughs> hey, Amy Goodman gives people dates. Right. Uh-huh. I remember years ago, I used to auction off one of the engineers, you know. She's got a lean and hungry look. You can take the engineers to lunch. Feed them up. Anyway, you know the numbers. Call us. Subscribe to KPFA. Do the right thing now today. I want to begin, I'm going to try always to begin with some poetry because I have the feeling lately, it is a strong feeling, that I've had enough, Yang, I need a little more yin, the world is really too much with us. Public affairs are all very well, but we need a little more, what is the word, soul searching, a little more poetry in our lives, folks, uh, you know how that goes. Uh, the, what is it? Uh, the aesthetics are what teach us things. The aesthetics are what give us our ethics. And I think the truth is, uh, we, most of us, had enough blood and guts. Enough blood and guts. Let's see. Let us start today with my favorite woman, Rachel Corey. I was just looking at her, the little play called My Name is Rachel Corey. You know Rachel, she died um, when a bulldozer hit her in uh, Gaza. Right. Uh, she put herself between a Palestinian home and the bulldozer. And uh, there she died on March the 16th, 2003. Oh, here is a bit from, yes, the year before that, she writes, had a dream about falling, falling to my death off of something dusty and smooth, crumbling like the cliffs in Utah, but I kept holding on. And when each new foothold 
or handle of rock broke. I reached out as I fell, grabbed a new one. I didn't have time to think about anything, just react, as if I was playing an adrenaline-filled video game. Then I heard, I can't die. I can't die again and again in my head. Seems somehow positive compared to the dreams I used to have of tumbling, thinking, this is it. I'm going to die. Oh, Rachel. Way back in Olympia, yes, here she is. At home on the west coast of the USA, we are all born and someday we'll all die. Most likely to some degree alone. What if our aloneness is not a tragedy? What if our aloneness is what allows us to speak the truth without being afraid? What if our aloneness is what allows us to adventure, to experience the world as a dynamic presence, a changeable, interactive thing? If I lived in Bosnia or Rwanda, or who knows where else, needless death wouldn't be a distant symbol to me. It wouldn't be a metaphor. It would be reality. I have no right to this metaphor, but I use it to console myself, to give a fraction of meaning to something enormous and needless. This realization this realization that I will live my life in this world where I have privileges. I can't cool boiling waters in Russia. I can't be Picasso. I can't be Jesus. I can't save the planet single-handedly. I can wash dishes. <laughs> God bless uh, that beautiful lady, uh, Yes, she can die, we can all die, and uh, someday for all of us, it will not be a metaphor. No, indeed, not a metaphor at all. <laughs> yes. Last week, I was yammering on about metaphors, and I was thinking to myself how, how nice it would be if those of us, yes, who go for the, the culture... The culture of power, yes. We're trying to use the power of culture, that is, our aesthetic, to change or modify or overcome this culture of power. You know, the thing you see every time you turn on the radio or the television, this crushing blow that hits us between the eyes over and over again. Uh, let's see... Um, what I would like to do today is to read you some bits and pieces of an ancient essay of my own written, oh, 25 years ago when I first came to this wonderful radio station. It was called The Imperative of Intimacy. It was all about the revolution of touch. You know how that is, folks, how, uh, <laughs> how, how this feminist or feminine revolution is going to be the last revolution. Uh, it's going to be what you call that uh, the final the final choice. I thought of that 
watching <clears throat> dear Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton this week. And I thought, yes, it's going to be the young man in this case. Um, sex, gender, whatever it is, and race. Um, I think all things considered... Well, the brothers got the vote there. You remember right after the Civil War, of course, they couldn't practice. Uh, they couldn't um, go to the polls and vote. You know, there was uh, all those impediments. Nevertheless, legally, they got the vote after the Civil War. And women, all women, black and white, we didn't get the vote until after World War One. So I guess it's one revolution at a time, folks. Uh, so it will be first Barack Obama. His family, I look at them and I think and I think. And uh, I remember when the people running for president were my own age. I talked to the people I know in their mid-40s, those that are the age of Michelle and Barack I look at their two little adorable little girls, and I remember the Kennedys with their two adorable little kids. And I think maybe this is the emblematic family, the, I guess you call it royal family of our time. Maybe this is the way it's supposed to be. Maybe they are the paradigm, what you call that, the, uh, uh, they stand for what you want to call that, the metaphor. Uh, I'm not sure. I still wonder at 74, you know, how things are supposed to be. I, I don't want to yammer on about Hillary Clinton being the possible vice presidential nominee. That seems premature. But I've been thinking a lot about that and whether it would work. <laughs> it is my impression that Bill Clinton does not care much for Barack Obama. But maybe, maybe he can get over that. He's managed to do a lot of things <laughs> for the state. Yes, Bill Clinton has managed to swallow a lot for the state. Let's face it. Uh, maybe he can handle this scene. Uh, anyway, that man-woman thing and the race thing, we're going to go, we're going to go with that forever. Uh, it won't end in my lifetime. The late, great writer James Baldwin once said that if we really believed, you know, what we say we believe, we would not do what we are doing. I remember when I began collecting my essays for publication, uh, I gathered them up and gave them to a friend of mine to read. You know, I wanted to get the male viewpoint. Now, he sighed and shook his head, and he said, Now, why? Why did I want to spit in the wind? He told me that humankind needs the political lie, you know, the big lie, the social lie. Uh, he says, It's no use waving a feminist fist in the air. He smiled at me. You see, when, when you do that, dear... <laughs> It's so unattractive, and, of course, it just makes men stronger. It affirms their power. It shows them where to break up the edifice, and it reinforces their prejudices. 
Well, I thought about it, and I thought he might be right, so I changed the subject. Uh, he seemed to go for my essays on literature. He could understand those. Uh, he wasn't about to see the uh, people like the Brontes, the 19th century uh, English women, the great dead white women as feminists. Uh, it was curious. I can't see them as anything but... We talked about the death of James Baldwin and uh, the rage of Jimmy Baldwin. I said that James Baldwin had shown me the way. And before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave and go home, etc., to my Lord and be free. He reminded me again that James Baldwin kept asking himself, what would happen? What would he feel? When the day came, there was no white man to blame. <laughs> what will happen? What will happen to you, my dear, he asked, when there is no longer a male threat on this earth? Well, we sat in silence for a long time after that, and he laughed. And he hugged me and said, yep, I guess, I guess you're right, my dear, uh, Yours is the last revolution. The revolution of touch, the feminist revolution. You know, uh, we're all in this together, boys and girls. Doesn't matter which end of the boat you're in when the boat is sinking. <laughs> I thought about that last night a lot because one of my nearest and dearest pointed out to me that I keep saying that when I was born, 1933, 1933, there were only two billion souls on this planet, only about approximately two billion human beings breathing and uh, suffering. And now we have, oh, six and a half. So, he said, why was I so upset and so disturbed uh, by all this death and destruction we see everywhere, multiplying four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> I said, true, true enough. Ah, ha, ha. It's very frivolous to be talking always about uh, joyous participation in the sorrows of the world when we hear all this terrible screaming from Burma, from China now, uh, all those children crushed in their schools. Uh, I find it particularly painful to go to sleep at night thinking of all of the people who are buried in these um, these terrible disasters, you know, breathing their last. Um, I cannot think of a more frightening death. Uh, but... If I'm not going to get up and take a plane and go over there, I guess I'd better try to do something else. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to figure out uh, what to do. The great Leo Tolstoy used to write, Yes, what then shall we do? What then shall we do? He asked. Of course, you know. The answer to that one, anything we can, anything at all. Uh, the great Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian novelist, <laughs> he wrote, he wrote, art should cause violence to be set aside. Right. Uh, art, 
the liberal arts should tenderize us. Uh, the study of literature is the study of the history of love, and we should be able to use it, you know, the way Christians use their blooming Bible. <laughs> they use it for everything. I guess I could use literature for dark, dark objects as well as uh, positive ones. That's a hard one to say. Uh, I don't know. I study the chaos of my own mind. And lately, I love to look back over the last 40 years. There are these marvelous parallels. If I go back to 1968, 40 years ago, watching the world change, watching the great revolution of the 60s, all the things, uh, for example, that brought me here to KPFA, uh, all the world changes, that wonderful renaissance that uh, people call it a Promethean moment in our Western history. You know, when we got it, uh, I guess it was the Vietnam War that woke us up. And, uh, of course... We thought we would change the world, and guess what, folks? Uh, we did. <laughs> we really, truly did. Uh, not, of course, in all the ways we had hoped, all the ways we had expected, but surely nothing has been the same since then. Uh, <clears throat> except maybe Washington, D.C. Yes, I tried. I tried not to look at the the president's daughter getting married this week. She uh, she married one of Carl Rove's henchmen. <laughs> anyway, never mind. She's a nice girl. 26, is she? Uh, Jenna Bush had the good sense to be married in Texas. Uh, not in Washington, a sensible thing. Uh, in any case, maybe... Yes, maybe we can just forget about the Bush clan. Maybe they will go away. If we just take a deep breath, they will be gone, and we will have a new order. Yes, the harvest of which shall be not yet, not in my time, but possibly Barack Obama and his family will bring us a new day. Uh, in the meantime, I think it's time for me to go back where I belong, to go back among the the writers and the thinkers, and uh, particularly the women. Last night I was looking, uh, looking through all my stuff on the great Lilith, my woman, as opposed to uh, Eve. Eve, I think of as yes, that's Hillary Clinton, a proper wife. <laughs> Lilith is the dark side of woman, the furious side, the side we're still not allowed to unleash. Ah, I found it in Isaiah. That's what I was looking for, yes. The wild cat shall meet with the jackals, and the satyr shall cry to his fellow. Yea, Lilith shall repose there and find her a place of rest. Now, that's the only reference in the Bible to the great Lilith. She just became a legend. And I always think of her as a wild cat. Yes, she's up against these jackals. Back in Washington, I was thinking that if um, Hillary, HRC, uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton, is not to be the next president of the United States, perhaps she will have a better job 
not just replacing old Ted Kennedy as a leading Democrat in the Senate, but as a uh, a voice, an inside-outsider voice, or uh, an outsider-insider, whatever you want to call it. But she can be the one to stand over the White House and say, uh, not the way to go, yes, along with Jimmy Carter and so many others. They'll find... They will find their style, these guys. Um, it's funny, last night I was looking at the, uh, what is it, the, the arc of Democrats all the way then to the far, far left and trying to figure out how their styles differ, what their styles are. In E.B. White's book, The Elements of Style, he says, style takes its final shape more from attitudes of mind than from principles of composition. Style is the writer and therefore what a man is rather than what he knows will at last determine his style. Yep, that's it. That's Barack Obama attitude of mind serenity he's calm 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 unlike George W who is apparently uh, short temper doesn't cover it <laughs> a lot of screaming going on in the White House yes <laughs> I don't know uh, perhaps we will know someday when they start writing the uh, the books that will tell us what went on up I hope, I hope to God, I never have to read memoirs about this administration. I cannot think of anything I would rather uh, turn away from. Uh, for me, the trip is all the way back to early American literature. Mark Twain, Gertrude Stein, Emily Dickinson. These are the people that I go to bed with, sleep with, talk to, write. Uh, they are my saints, my literary saints. They comfort me. Yes, yea, though I walk through the valley <laughs> of the shadow of Republicans. <laughs> I shall fear no future Republican, no John McCain, yes, uh, Ah, oh, for they are with me, all these glorious writers, Gertrude Stein writes. Two things, two things are always the same, the dance and war. You imagine anything as redundant as a war in our time? Gertrude writes, Gertrude Stein writes, history takes time. Somewhere else she wrote, Let me recite what history teaches. History teaches. <laughs> then she writes, Do you know? Do you know? Because I tell you so. Or do you know? Do you know? Now, it had come to her, she said, as dying men see, yes, she could see as dying men are said to see clearly and freely things as they are, and not 
as she wished them to be. Why cannot you speak in pieces and say no matter? Feudal days were the days of the fathers. Oh, this is my favorite. Uh, <laughs> she's talking about a woman friend. She said, can't she see things as they are, not as she would make them if she were strong enough, as she plainly isn't? And the best of all, yes, once upon a time I met myself and ran. I think that the uh, long paragraph that Gertrude Stein wrote, I used it on my uh, <laughs> my master's thesis to head up my master's thesis because it seemed to me to encapsulate everything that Gertrude Stein had figured out about this writing business and about living and uh, about communication. Gertrude Stein wrote, Disillusionment in living is the finding out nobody agrees with you. Not those that are and were fighting with you. Disillusionment in living is the finding out nobody agrees with you, not those that are fighting for you. Complete disillusionment is when you realize that no one can, for they can't change. The amount they agree is important to you until the amount they do not agree with you is completely realized by you. Then you say you will write for yourself and strangers. You will be for yourself and strangers, and this then makes an old man or an old woman of you. <laughs> and there it is, yes. They can't change. I used to believe that there was a gene, you know, for right wing or left wing. It seems to me that the left wing people suffer from uh, absolutism. That is, uh, they want things to be perfect. You know, they will look at uh, a political candidate and they will find the flaw, particularly in those whose ideology is closest to their own. <laughs> and they will tear them to shreds. Oh, yes. <laughs> the other end of the spectrum, the so-called right wing, oh, they have another absolute. They have that uh, Bush thing, yes. You're for me or against me, yes or no, uh, right or wrong. You're loyal or you're not. Uh, it's the good and evil folks, you know, nothing in between, no grays, no whites, uh, no, uh, pale, yes, pale, a whiter shade of pale. So difficult uh, for people to stop and have second thoughts. They think that that is weakness. You know, um, <laughs> or as Gertrude Stein used to say about Ezra Pound, he is a village explainer, which is all very well if you are a village. <laughs> But if not, not. It is actually the great Gertrude Stein who wrote, Take it easy, and if you can't take it easy, take it as easy as you can. I stole it right off the top, as uh, T.S. Eliot used to say. Poor poets borrow, great poets steal. Oh, gee, I changed it to go easy, which means that I, yes, <laughs> I'm a poor poet. 
Gertrude Stein wrote, what, what is poetry? And if you know what poetry is, what is prose? <laughs> Never mind. What Gertrude said that matters most is what people repeat, they love. And what they love, they repeat. If you are a thinker, she said, you will change the language. You will not use words the way the others do. Please subscribe to KPFA today if you have a moment. I will be back on the air again next Tuesday at this same time. And until then, this has been Jennifer Stone. Go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Drop the Wake up, all you people out there. The KPFA Spring Fun Drive is just around the corner from Tuesday, May 6th to Thursday, May 22nd. And we need your help. We are seeking donations from local restaurants, grocers, and caterers to help our phone room volunteers stay happy and energized. So please, support your local radio station by donating food for your hungry helpers. For more information on how you can participate, please call 510-848-6767, extension 258. That's 510-848-6767, extension 258. Or email maria at kpfa.org. This is Free Speech Radio News for Tuesday, May 13, 2008.